Hi, welcome back to a brand new series of The Cake with Joe and Jane. Yes, that's right, we've got a brand new Joe, but rather confusingly, he's actually called Ian. So, welcome Ian. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us why we're going to refer to you as Joe? Hi Jane, uh, so my name's Ian, uh, but my surname's Crowley. And so when I was at school um, and going through university and in my early years in the army, uh, everybody just called me Joe, Joe Crow. So I am, I am your new Joe Jane. <laughs> and we're very pleased to have you here. Um, what job do you do at the hospital, Ian? So I'm the deputy to the chief people officer, so I'm here to try and help everybody in the hospital. And in keeping with tradition on our podcast, what's the one thing that people might not know about you? So I'm a massive sports fan, which probably a lot of people might know, but um, my sporting claim to fame is... Uh, uh, when I was about 18, 19, I was playing for a local football team and we played against a team that had Paul Heaton, the lead singer of the House Martins and then the Beautiful South in the team. Did you win the, the football game? Sadly, no, we lost 6-3. But I did store, score a screamer in the top right-hand corner. Excellent. And joining us on this episode, we have Adrian Berholt, one of our hospital chaplains, and Rhonda Williams, Macmillan Primary Care Nurse Facilitator. So... Let's start with Rhonda. Do you fancy telling us about your career to date? So let's see. I studied nursing at the University of Cape Town back in South Africa a long time ago now, it feels like. That was probably 1997 that I graduated. And then I worked at home for a couple of years. But what I really always wanted was to specialise in spinal cord injuries, which brought me to Salisbury. So I then... After a few years, moved to London to gain some experience in nursing management. And I guess we could fast forward, I don't know, maybe about 19 years. And I worked my way through men's health, prostate cancer, and then advanced prostate cancer. And then really um, was quite passionate about advanced disease and did specialist palliative care. And that was a further six years. And then really wanted to return to Salisbury. So... um, came back beginning of last year and took on this post with Macmillan and that's where I am I think. You said you really wanted to specialise in spinal injuries was mm. there a reason for that why why spinal? I looked after somebody that fell down Table Mountain and um, he was the first person I ever looked after and we looked after him for about six months and just the first day we got him up into that wheelchair stirred my heart his family life stirred my heart. He had two young children under the age of seven, and just to see how it affected his marriage, how it affected his children, made me feel that's what I wanted to be a part of. So you lived through some really historic times in South Africa with the release of Mandela in the early 90s. What was your experience of, of living under that regime? It was certainly quite eye-opening and exciting, It wasn't always positive. Um, A lot of my education from probably the age of nine was very disrupted. Um, We had a lot of riots in the Cape. um, And at that stage, I was going to a very, um, how would I say, so what we would call a coloured school. And because my education was so disruptive, my parents made a decision between the two of them to move us to a non-government school. And so at the age of 11, you know, it was quite uprooting. I went to a school in the city centre, which meant I had to travel a further 40 minutes or so to school, make new friends, not really fit in. 
quite ostracised. Um, so, yes, I was 15 when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. It was an exciting time in the Cape. But I think if I didn't go to the school that I went to, I wouldn't have had such an all-round education and feel safe, which not a lot of girls my age at the time had. And how has that experience impacted on your future work life as you've come through into nursing? Yeah, I, I'm grateful for having grown up in such a metropolitan city and the focus on race and diversity. You know, yes, there was a lot of um, discrimination, but I think for me, what it taught me alongside our family life was to be open and receptive to everybody and love people as individuals and to respect our differences. And so I think in nursing, moving from that background in South Africa, um, not always being afforded equal opportunities to coming to England and having the world there before me, just to make the most of every opportunity. Um, and in my care to others, it allowed me to be a lot more open-minded and accepting and tolerant. You cannot nurse people with prejudice in your heart. What age did you decide to be a nurse? Was there a specific sort of calling as such or is it just, did you fall into it naturally? To be honest, Jane, it was the curriculum. Okay. <laughs> it was not a calling. It was because I loved what I was going to be able to study and that's okay. where the decision came in as to what I would study. It wasn't about what I was going to become at the end of it. And as things unfolded for me, I realised that it was the purpose of my life and where I was going to serve. And you said you came to Salisbury and, and worked here for a while but then decided to go and gain new experiences in other parts of England in London. What drew you back to Salisbury? I was there for the terrorist attack yeah. at Westminster Bridge. I was there at Borough Market working at Guy's Hospital oh, during wow. that attack. And all of that just made me think I want to be somewhere safe. I want to be somewhere where I'm happy. You know, so many people's lives were cut short. And where was it that I was the happiest? And it was Salisbury. Lovely. And you were saying earlier you moved across and, and are now specialised in cancer. And as a man of a certain age, I, I was really pleased to hear you're um, specialising in, in men's cancer and men's illnesses. Why have you specialised in, in, in that area specifically? An opportunity arose in London to work with a, a leading prostate surgeon who was pioneering robotic surgery at the time. And I got the job and a lot of my career took off in prostate cancer nursing from there. And I'll always be grateful to him. We've talked about your job and what you've done to date in your career. Is there anything that we don't know about you from your personal life or anything else that someone listening will be quite surprised to hear? I think it's probably plenty, Jane. Um. Keep it clean. <laughs> you can't work in men's health and uh, exactly. Clean, I'm afraid, Jane. <laughs> uh, but I will try. <laughs> You've got to have a special skill, I think. I love being out in nature, I love water sports, I love reading, I love contemporary dance, I love classical music, I'm classically trained. Oh wow. What instrument do you favour? Probably love the piano, though I think I was probably better at the violin. We could do our own version of Salisbury's Got Talent, couldn't we? With some of the hidden talents of our star. Oh, yes. Rhonda's <laughs> number one on the list. <laughs> 
So moving on to Adrian, do you want to tell us what you've done today? Right now I'm a chaplain and it's been a kind of a slightly strange route here. So I, 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 I actually qualified as an electronics engineer. Oh, slightly different. I worked for a defence electronics company, so I was known as a dealer of death at the time, which is not always very good, is it really? Because I was out, you know, we were selling electronics that um, were involved in defence stuff. And then I went from there into kind of more commercial electronics um, and I suppose technology. So I worked at Vodafone for nine years, for example, and I ran their innovation team, set it oh, up wow. actually. It was great fun. And then um, I was very fortunately made redundant because it was kind of quite a kind of a healthy little payout at the time. And I then spun some technology out of Vodafone and I did a startup business. So I raised some money, went to the venture capitalists. So we, we built a company, we launched some technology. Sadly, it didn't work out um, as these things mostly don't. And then I went into effectively kind of management consultancy, project management stuff. So mm-hmm. I was working latterly in London and that was kind of all fine. And it was very handy when you're bringing up four kids. So I've got four kids and paying for all of that because they weren't yep. exactly that cheap. So that was good. Um, they never are, are they? No. Uh, they don't tell you this. Does anybody ever tell you? No, they don't. So um, if only, anyway. Um, so so it was good. But I, I suppose latterly I was, um, I mean, probably my mid to late 40s, I was kind of going, what, what is this all about? And, you know, that kind of sense of purpose. And, and yeah. I was really kind of, I suppose, struggling to find it as much as the money was good. I was struggling to find it in the work I was doing at the time. And I kind of was saying my little sort of, my little prayer, which was, what needs to be blessed and how can I kind of possibly help with that? That was a simple thing. I kept saying it. And then eventually I thought, ah, oh, it's got to be charities. It's got to be charities. Uh, if I, I was involved in setting up a little charity, which yep. I'd love to talk about later. Yes, definitely. But, um, and I thought, well, clearly I can go and work as a charity. I mean, I've got lots of management leadership experience. I could go and run a charity. That would be great. And I applied to these charities and the doors were shut so quick and so fast. And then I happened to be in my local church in Devizes and a guy who trains vicars who's a very ordinary bloke who drives motorbikes and all sorts of like non-typical vicary things yeah he goes uh oh what do you do again he does talk about like that Howard what do you do and I said <laughs> I am um, yeah I'm a project manager management consultant and he said have you thought about ministry and then he pointed to his color and I went you must be joking and then there was a whole a whole journey that I went yeah. on jump forward to to where I am now and I started here as a chaplain um in September two days a week and I'm now pretty much full-time here and absolutely loving it it's very different though isn't it, it if you is. if you've someone looked at your cv and thought you, you know you've been yeah. trained as an engineer yeah. you've worked for very big companies yeah, marketing yeah. innovation project yeah. management to go from that and like you said some of it's you very well paid yeah. to, to become a, a yeah. chaplain yeah why there was this niggling little voice sort of saying actually there was something more being demanded of my life and I was also going through a whole kind of problem not problem but a, a kind of working out what my faith was so I was brought up as a Roman Catholic okay I suppose I was on this journey of, of, of kind of going how do I make sense of what I've been told and what I've been brought up with and how do I use that it was a bit of a kind of a thing really and then I um I had been spending quite a bit of time over about the last probably 10 years or so going out to meet the South Sudanese who I, oh, okay. who I um, really do some work with. And they completely transformed my view of what this whole faith thing is about because I think it probably was a little bit for me a Sunday morning thing you did. Yeah. And if you did it, then it was okay and you were kind of clear for the week and you could get off and just be fine. And I met people who had absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing, and yet had the greatest faith, hope and joy Aww. in that I've ever come across with literally nothing. 
that really kind of struck me if it's it's more about the air you breathe than the thing you do on a Sunday morning yeah and so that kind of was also part of the of the nudge I suppose the holy nudge the holy nudge the holy nudge to become a chaplain the South Sudanese angle if you like oh. is absolutely it's absolutely fascinating Adrian mm. um, and I know your charity is called Projects Delivering Hope mm. can you tell us a little bit more about what that charity does for the people in South Sudan yeah so um the whole premise of our little charity is that we um, don't give handouts, we give hand-ups. As, as a Christian, you know, there's this wonderful line, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he says to this blind man by the side of the road, what would you have me do for you? So we always go, what is it, you know, how can we help you? What is it you'd have us do for you? And they said, we would love to buy some bread ovens and bake bread. So these are basically metal filing cabinets, if you imagine that, with a charcoal thing at the bottom and some shelves, and they bake bread. The purpose, so they can then not only eat bread but sell bread, and make a little, tiny little bits of, I mean, micro money, tiny bits of money. Yeah. So we bought 20 of these things. So we were out there in February, and one lady said, thank you for this bread oven. And the bread was amazing, by the way. Was better it? than Greg's. Sorry, Greg's, but it was better than Greg's. What? It was better than Greg's. I know, I know. And Not, Reeves. Yeah, well, yeah, no, but it was really good. And uh, and so, and this lady said, uh, because of this bread oven, I've been able to send my kid to school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And oh, then amazing. another lady said, because of bread oven, I've been able to buy a goat, which a goat is a kind of big thing for yeah. food and more. So you just think, and that's that's exactly the idea. You spend, you know, what is a couple of hundred dollars getting the whole bread oven thing together and training and starter packs and things. And then they, they are released. So as well as doing your chaplaincy role mm. and your charity, do you have any other spare time to do anything else? What, what, what do people not know about you that we've already discussed? try to keep it a little bit quiet about this, but one of my um, interests is, is conjuring oh. and so I do a little bit of just a bit, bit of magic and it's great and so um yeah it's great fun we definitely do have Britain's Got yeah, Talent yeah. version at Salisbury don't we yeah. Salisbury's Got Talent yeah, yeah. contest's coming isn't it yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dave's making a note ready for the next staff yeah. awards so Adrian that's a that's a fascinating journey of your life which appears to be absolutely seamless and, and choices of moving through, notwithstanding the, the, the sort of one element of redundancy that you covered. Um, clearly, there have been lots of challenges in there, not least changing careers and changing fundamental direction. What, what's the biggest challenge that you've overcome as you've gone through your career? Well, one of the absolutely hardest things I had to deal with was um, when I, I started up my little tech business, um, which was great fun. We raised millions of pounds. We'd had a team of 14 staff. Um, we were written up in the Financial Times. You know, oh, wow. we, were, we were we were kind of sailing high. It was great. You know, it was a real buzz and a real journey. And there was a, um, a, a kind of legal complication, which, you know, it's too complicated, but it was a legal complication, which basically meant that the business that I thought had, that had some value was actually worthless. And to try and drag it back, I'd have to take a very large PLC to court and no investors invest in court cases. They just don't do it. So they, they went literally overnight when we found this news about something. They went, were out. And I was faced with no funding, 14 people on the books, and it was just before Christmas. And I had to call them all in and go, I'm really sorry, but there is absolutely no way out of this. And I just wish there was, but you're all, we are now insolvent. You're all having to go home and you're going to have to apply to the insolvency agency to get yourself some money and it and I was it just broke my heart because it wasn't just the people there it was all their families and all the rest of it and I can just remember then sitting at my son's nativity play at the local school after that just having just not able to engage with it and then having to go home and write them all letters mm. and it was just awful and then 
it had taken its toll on my wife too, who started to have some major kind of mental health issues. So the day that I had to go and meet the administrator was the day that I was due to take her in to see the psychologist or whichever one it was, the first meeting, and I had to go with her. So I had to prioritise that over going to the administrator meeting. And I said, look, I'm not meeting you at 12. I have to meet you at 5 after I've made sure my wife's been yeah. seen. And I remember that day just being just one of the darkest times. It was just awful. But you know what? You bounce back. And how did you bounce back? Yeah. How did you cope with that? You know, when you get to those really dark places, I connect with, you know, we might use words like higher being, God, yeah. whatever. And I just say, go what do I need to do right now? Because I can't make sense of this. And and I just had this very simple thing that came back, which is two things. One is just take one step at a time. And that's all that is asked of you. And the second thing is draw closer. So draw closer to that light, because that light will get you through this sort of stuff. And I basically did. And actually, you know what? I look back and I think if that hadn't happened, I can guarantee you, I might be on a boat in the Bahamas, by the way, and having a great old time. Very nice. But if, I, if that hadn't happened... I am absolutely convinced I wouldn't be sitting here right now and I yeah. wouldn't be having the most profound encounters that we have as chapters on a daily basis and feeling like I'm where I need to be. And Rhonda, yourself, uh, I'm sure you've experienced many challenges and you've discussed your time in South Africa and then your experiences in London, but what has been your biggest challenge? I guess the colleagues that you work with over your nursing career, colleagues that have been unkind or colleagues that have been unpleasant. Um, and then you've got to push yourself through and go, why am I in this job? Why do I do what I do? You just put them on the peripheries and you carry on pushing through for what you're there for, and that's the patient. I think those have certainly been the hardest, and then the loss of a sibling. So when did you lose your sibling? Um, it was about 12 years ago now, and it was um, my older brother. We had two years between us. And I was working in London at the Men's Health Centre at the time. And I realised how much time I invested into my career and my work. And at that time, I realised I was giving far too much to work and, and less to my family yeah. and my friends. And then that happened. I um, My brother had been ill from when I was 13. And everything changed within the space of days. Yeah. And, of course, I had to fly back to Cape Town. So you were away from your family at that time as well? I was. Oh, that must have been so tough. When that person's been a part of your life for so long and they form part of who you are and they're gone, um, it just makes you look at life so very differently. And now I help on our bereavement journey here in Salisbury and help other people. Um, And that's been for the last eight years of my life that I volunteer on that. And I realise... That, that loss is part of life and it, it changes who we are, but it also gives us an opportunity to to go forward and, and live differently. And what does live differently look like? I think to, to appreciate the relationships that we have, to make a difference in other people's lives and to look at our values and our morals and yeah. go, what matters to me? Who am I? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to be to other people? Um, and at the end of my days, um, you know, what peace do I want or what will give me joy? So definitely I found being a chaplain, which I've only been for six months, has been really profound. Just the extraordinary experiences. You know, you get situations on a regular basis. I'm sure, Rhonda, you would have had this too, where somebody's just being delivered the most tragic news. And you pop your head around the curtain or you open the knock on the door and you put your head around and you go, look, I'm so sorry. 
And then I say something like, I come here empty-handed. There is nothing I can say or do right now that is going to change any of this situation for you. But I just want you to know that I'm here for you and with you in whatever way that's useful. Mm-hmm. And they just quite often sit there and start talking. Mm-hmm. And I walk out of there going, wow, what have I done? I've just turned up and sat. But what you've done is you've listened and yeah. that they know that you care. Mm. You've given them that time. Mm. I think often on the wards, everybody's so incredibly busy that that focus of just being with somebody is exactly what they need. Mm. That sense of humanity and that love that you will show. Mm. Um, Adrian, it's, it, it's a fascinating juxtaposition between your earlier career that you've described to us, which was very commercial, um, very driven by... Um, issues that perhaps are in conflict with your Christian faith and, and with, with the role you currently um, take on. How have you managed to square that, um, that challenge, I suppose, between uh, a very commercial world and, and, and your faith and upbringing? Yeah, there's a few points. I, mean, I mentioned earlier on that I worked in the defence electronics business and I think it's fair to say I didn't really have a faith at that point. I mean, I was so brought up Roman Catholic, but I just went, it's all just completely pointless and, you know, mm-hmm. went away from it. I did come back to it later, but in a kind of with a different way. So some of that stuff, they, they weren't in conflict because they were at a time when I didn't have the conflict. Um, but I, you know, I can, just thinking about it, I vividly remember once I'd just come back from South Sudan, right, and there are people there with, like it's, I know, absolutely nothing. And I was at an awards dinner for something we'd done at the Grosvenor House, and they got a massive kind of big ballroom thing. Yeah. And there were, well, I don't know how many tables there, but, you know, there was about 10 people per table, and maybe 300 people, and the tickets were 300 quid each. You know, so it was... It was hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of wealthy city types all gathering around gate, absolutely wasted and having a final time and Graham Norton coming out and giving awards. And I remember wow. looking down from the balcony at this scene and thinking, you know, a clinic in South Sudan costs 45, 50,000 quid, right? And staffed and we'll, we'll, we'll probably, you'll get about, you'll probably save 50 people in a year, right? Yeah. So in that room was about four clinics, which is probably 200 people. And I looked at it and went, how do I make sense of that? Because I, if you could convert that currency into clinics, there'll be 200 people alive at the end of the year that w- would otherwise not have been. Yeah. And all that's going to happen is everybody's going to go out and again, they get horribly drunk and have a headache in the morning and pick up an award and stick it on the shelf. This is what happens. And it struck me so much that I can't resolve that because that, that these are not currencies that I can exchange. I can't exchange that for that. But what I can do is be part of that, part of that world. And in that world speak to people who have got funds and money and resources in a language they understand to then in a, in another way kind of find ways to provide help being a force for good being a force for good and yeah bring some of that into it yeah okay so you're on the podcast called the cake we can't leave the discussion today without talking about cake so Rhonda, if i start with you what's your favorite cake and why i'd say a carrot cake jane oh we've got one I see so. (laughs) And why? When I was 11 years old, I made my first carrot cake and I've been making it ever since for very important family events. So it was for Mother's Day and I subsequently always made a cake for my mum and for my grandmum. And then when my nephew turned one, I made him a carrot cake with his favourite monkey, Arthur, as the model. (laughs) So the carrot cake is important and my favourite. Happy memories. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. So you'll get to try some yourself, Adrian? 
Does millionaire's, millionaire's shortbread count as cake? Can I? Can I? We can accept that. Can we, yeah, millionaire's shortbread. Do you know that's so weird? My nana, who was the best baker ever, yeah. is no longer with us, bless her. I used to make millionaire short, and I was literally thinking last night, I'm going to have to make it for one of these episodes. Yeah. So when I do, I'll bring some down to the chapman for yeah, you. That'll be great. Yeah, because yeah. it's really good. Excellent. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Cake and to our amazing guests for taking the time to record with us. And if you'd like to listen to any of our other episodes, they are all available now wherever you get your podcasts from. Right, time for cake. Fancy a slice? Oh yes. <laughs>